The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Two Ways to Walk. Two Ways to Walk. This is part two. In a brief series, as we're looking at the two ways to walk from Romans chapter 8, in particular, verses 1 through 11, this morning we'll focus our attention on verses 7 and 8. And once again, this morning we take up God's Word, and we take up Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where Paul has been laboring with us, laboring to assure us of the security of our salvation, the security of the grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. This great salvation to which we have been delivered is through the means of faith and not by works of the law. It is through the means of faith so that that salvation would be all of grace and not in any way dependent upon ourselves. And because salvation is entirely due to the grace of God and not in any way dependent upon ourselves or any works of our own, then that salvation is sure. That salvation is certain to all those who place their faith and trust in him. It's all of God. And God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. God will see to it that everything he has decreed will come to pass. God is faithful to his word and faithful to his work. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The one who is justified in the sight of God, the one who has been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, will never be condemned. He'll never face condemnation. He has been set free. He has been delivered from the condemnation that was due to the guilt of his sin. And according to Paul in this text, he has been set free. He has been delivered from the condemnation that was due the enslaving power of his sin. Both the penalty of our sin paid and the power of sin in our life broken. For what the law could not do, what the law was rendered incapable of doing through the obstinacy, the intransigence of our own sinful flesh, God did it. And God did it by sending his own son. God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son at Calvary. And the power of sin was broken, praise God. The purpose... The purpose for which God condemned sin in the flesh, in the flesh of his own son, the purpose for which Jesus Christ died to the power of sin once for all was so that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not so that we can go on living lawlessly as if the law didn't exist or wasn't important, but so that we might fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, a text read earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith, by grace, through the means or through the instrumentality of faith, and that, the salvation that is by grace through faith, faith, all of it, a gift of God is not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are those good works? They're works that conform to the law of God. They conform to the law as good. And those good works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, it's at this point here in Ephesians chapter 2, but also in Romans chapter 8, it's at this point that Paul once again employs the metaphor of walking to describe the Christian life. Paul defines the manner in which a Christian is to walk now by contrasting in our text 
two different standards or principles of conduct. Two different standards or principles for walking. One standard serves the interests or desires of the flesh. The other standard serves the interests or desires of the spirit. The contrast involves two different and contrary groups, two different and contrary paths, two different and contrary destinations. You're on the broad road to destruction or on the narrow road that leads to life. Those who fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, verse 4, in other words, those who fulfill the purpose for which they were delivered by God from their bondage to sin are those, verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but rather walk according to the Spirit. Their manner of walking, their manner of living the Christian life conforms to a standard or to a rule of conduct that is associated with the life of the Spirit, namely the law of God. And that walk, that walk is carried out in the power and in the enablement of the Spirit. The Christian life is walked in conformity, is lived in conformity to the desires of the Spirit of God who indwells you. And the Spirit of God is working in you to bring you into conformity with the law of God that reflects his own character. He is producing in us holiness for his name's sake. He is producing in us sanctification. It's what we call sanctification. That journey, that journey is a progressive one. It's a journey that is accomplished step by step by step over a lifetime. It begins with new birth. It begins with the indwelling of God's spirit. It begins with faith in Jesus Christ, with our justification. And that journey ends with complete conformity to the image, to the person of the son. This is the biblical process of sanctification. The end for those who do not walk according to the spirit, but rather walk according to the flesh Theirs is the broad road that leads to destruction. Their end is death. And there is, brothers and sisters, there are many, many who are on that road. It's a broad and easy way. That is the path to perdition. That is the path to hell, misery, and woe. Now, Paul says these two contrary groups these two contrary paths, these two contrary destinations, that it all comes down to a mindset, a disposition of heart. For those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, as Dr. Murray explains, they have the things of the flesh as the absorbing objects of their thoughts, of their interests, of their affections, of their purpose. They have the things of the flesh as the objects of the faculties or the members of their soul. And therefore, that carnal mind that is set upon the flesh engages the will in satisfying the desires of the flesh, and that pathway leads to death. In like manner, then, in like manner, those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, they have the things of the Holy Spirit as the absorbing objects of their thoughts of their interests, of their affections, of their purpose and manner of living. And therefore, they, those who walk according to the Spirit, they, with that spiritual mindedness, if you will, they engage their will in fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And in keeping with the desire uh, and work of the Spirit within them, he works in them both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. 
This really is further explanation, isn't it? Further exposition of what Paul discussed with us in Romans chapter 6. Those who as a pattern of life submit themselves steadfastly and increasingly to the desires of the Spirit as expressed in the law, which is holy, just, and good, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end of that path is eternal or everlasting life. And those who as a pattern of life submit themselves to their remaining corruption, those who as a pattern of their walking, as a manner of their walking, submit themselves to their remaining corruption, their indwelling sin, and so to their flesh, they will of the flesh reap corruption. And the end of those things is death. Each of those spiritual conditions, those contrasting conditions, those conditions of heart and mind, they bear their respective fruits in chapter 8, verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The question you have to ask yourself from this chapter is, which path are you walking? Which path are you walking? What does your life look like? What path are you on? Are you on the broad, easy path that leads to perdition? Or are you on the narrow, difficult way which leads to life? Paul, it's important to understand, Paul's not setting up a contrast here between spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. That's not the contrast that Paul is concerned with here. That's going to come, right? That's not the contrast here. Don't believe the carnal Christian life, the lie, right? Don't believe the carnal Christian lie. Paul's not referring here to an inner conflict within the Christian between the flesh and the spirit. There will be conflict in the Christian between the flesh and the spirit. In the life of a Christian, there will be conflict. He's going to get to that in verse 13, right? That's Galatians chapter 5. That's not what Paul is referring to here. Paul is setting up a contrast between those who are lost and those who are saved. Those who have the Spirit of God and those who do not have the Spirit of God. Those who are in the flesh as a matter of habit set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are carnally minded, bearing fruit to death, they are contrasted here with those who are in the Spirit who as a matter of habit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit, those who are spiritually minded, bearing fruits to holiness, the end of which is eternal life. Two categories of people, two realms of being, two eventual outcomes. What is the fruit that you are producing? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I don't want you to see that from Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Two categories of people, two realms of being, two eventual outcomes. Which path are you walking? Galatians chapter 5 is helpful to this end because it describes for us what the works of the flesh are and then fruits of the Spirit. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Begin with me at verse 16. Verse 16. Paul says, I say then, listen, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why is that? Because walking according to the Spirit and walking according to the flesh are mutually exclusive. They are contrary to one another. They're going to war against one another. You can't do both at the same time, right? They're at odds. They are opposed. They are contrary at every point. Walk in the Spirit. You shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another at every point so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the condemnation of the law anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. These works are adultery. And the Lord says in Matthew 5, doesn't he? To look at a woman with lust on your heart is to commit adultery already with her in your heart. When we consider these sins, it's, it's the family of sins, if you will, that we're considering. From the seed to its fullest expression, everything in between is sin. Everything in between violates the law of God. Everything in between is a work of the flesh. Do you see? Works of the flesh are evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. This is a representative list. It's not comprehensive. It's, uh, these are the abominations that pour out of men's hearts. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. All of the thoughts, all of the conduct, all of the words associated with these sins that pour from the sinful heart of man represent the works of the flesh. I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because those who practice such things are sowing to their flesh, and of the flesh will reap corruption. Those who have their minds set on the flesh are bearing fruit to death. To be carnally minded is death. Do you see? But, verse 22, however, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Acting in love. Speaking in love, thinking, lovely thoughts, <laughs> joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's what Paul means in Romans chapter 6, where he says that Christ died to sin once for all, so that we who are united to Jesus Christ through faith, his death to sin becomes our death to sin. The old man has been crucified in Jesus Christ, crucified with his passions and desires. The power of sin has been broken. If, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Back in Romans chapter 8, what is the fruit that you are producing? Which path are you walking? Those who are in the flesh, those who are in the spirit. Now, after having introduced for us this contrast between two ways to walk, in verses 5 and 6, Paul now sets out to explain the difference between the two in verses 7 to 11. Right? He's going to explain the difference between these two ways to walk. He describes the carnally-minded man in verses 7 and 8, our text this morning, and then he describes the spiritually-minded man in verses 9 through 11, a text that, Lord willing, we'll consider next week. Okay? He begins now with the carnally-minded man in verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, 
For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, we know, we know that the one who is carnally minded is the one who has set his mind on the things of the flesh. Verse 3. The one who is carnally minded, that has become the character of his walk. The one who is carnally minded has set his mind as a matter of habit. He has set his mind on the things of the flesh. Verse 5. The carnally minded man, the carnally minded man is the one who lives or walks according to the standard of conduct that conforms with his sinful flesh. That's verse 6. And, verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. The word because at the beginning of verse 7 then indicates an explanation of that statement. Paul is going to explain his statement to be carnally minded is death. Paul sets out to explain why the mind set on the flesh bears fruit to death. Why? Notice first, the nature of the carnal mind. The nature of the carnal mind. To be carnally minded is death because, verse 7, the nature of the carnal mind is enmity, is enmity against God. In other words, the one who has his mind set on the flesh reaps as his fruit reaps death because the one who has his mind set on the flesh has God as his enemy. He reaps death as his fruit because he has God as his enemy. It's the very essence of sin to be against God. The, the very essence of sin is to be against God, is against God. So those who set their minds on the things of the flesh are those who are governed. They are regulated by an enmity toward God. They have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Their mind, the carnal mind, is at enmity with God. They're being regulated, governed by a principle of enmity. Enmity toward God is the regulating or governing principle of their thoughts, of their words, of their conduct. Their carnal mind engages their will and leads to their conduct. The carnal mind at enmity with God engages their will according to the standard of conduct associated with their flesh because it's at enmity with God and results in sinful conduct. That word translated enmity refers to a continual state of deep-seated ill will or hostility. That's what the word means. A deep-seated ill will or hostility. In other words, the mind of the man that is set on the flesh is not neutral. The mind of the man that is set on the flesh, not neutral. That deep-seated ill will or hostility is an expression that is rooted or grounded in hatred. It is rooted or grounded in contempt. For, because the one who sets his mind on the things of the flesh, the underlying disposition or the underlying mindset now that regulates or governs his conduct is hatred. Hatred for and opposition to God. Now he might object, and he often does. If you've witnessed to people for any length of time, you've heard them say, listen, I don't hate God. I don't hate, I'm not a God hater. God says you are. God says you are. So let's understand why that is the case. <laughs> it may be, it may be that his hostility is not expressed 
His hostility towards God, his enmity against God is not expressed in the same rage that we see often expressed in our day today. Maybe it's not expressed in the same way. It's not expressed in the the kind of rage that caused those in the temple when Stephen was preaching to rush upon him and to kill him with stones. may not be expressed with the same kind of rage that caused them to bite and to gnash at him with their teeth, right? Or the kind of rage that we see expressed today against anything to do with God or Christianity. An increasing rage that my brother was talking about uh, in the Northeast, where people have become unhinged, as it were, against giving free reign to their animosity, giving free reign to their hostility. But don't let that fool you. Don't let that fool you. The apparent, any apparent indifference is passive aggressive. It's passive aggressive. Hatred, that hatred of God, the animosity that is characteristic of the carnal mind is not casual and it's not occasional. Matthew Henry says that that hatred arises out of the very nature of the carnal mind, and you often see it when it's tested under conviction. Let me give you an example. There are several examples. I was uh, remember one time uh, open air preaching at Lake Yola, and uh, it was the wine and cheese festival. <laughs> one of the one of the, the 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 examples that comes to my memory because it was such an overt example of this very thing. People, you know, when you meet them, as nice as they can be, shaking hands and enjoying. It's a nice evening out. And so I set up to open air preach uh, the Wine and Cheese Festival just the other side of a fence uh, in Lake Eola and um, began to preach through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the sin list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I imagined that I might have difficulty when I got to the sin of drunkenness. It wasn't the sin of drunkenness that caused such... Uh, 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 a volatile response, it was the sin of homosexuality. And I'm, lying, I'm, I'm standing there uh, in front of it, where a lot of people were at the porta potties. There, there are, are porta potties lined up, <laughs> lined up by the park. There's no exaggeration, there's probably 30 of them, okay, 30 of them. And I begin to preach. And when I get to that point of mentioning homosexuality and beginning to preach on homosexuality, everything shifted. Uh, it seemed to me to be almost at once. And there was such. Um, vitriol, like poured out all of a sudden. People coming up to the fence and screaming at me from the fence. And I um, heard like muffled shouts. And I realized there were muffled shouts coming from the porta potties. Like uh, um, <laughs> people from inside the porta potty uh, yelling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, in other words, um, those who might have professed to be indifferent if you would talk to them on the street, when tested under conviction or when tested by the word of God, when the word of God brought to bear on them, their um, hostility comes out. Their indifference is passive aggressive. You often see it at the, the abortion mill. You're going to see it if you're preaching the gospel. That hatred is not casual, nor is the hatred occasional. It's often tested under conviction. Often those who profess indifference have fashioned a God after their own making in their own heart and mind. It's a God, it's a God who will not punish them in hell for their conduct. He will not punish them in hell for their supposed indifference. And when the God of the Bible is actually revealed to them, you see the hostility. 
They hate the God of the Bible so much, they have constructed a straw man to shield themselves from him, from the true God. And as long as their God allows them to continue in their sin unabated, that one can pretend indifference. But when he is confronted with the word of God and a revelation of God as he is, as he is infinitely holy, as he is inviolably, inflexibly just, as he is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass, the omnipotent potter with power over the clay to make one vessel for honor and to make another for dishonor, the God who does not regard your decisions, does not regard your work or your religiosity as any means by which you are accepted with him, the one who will by no means acquit the guilty apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, the God who considers your, your works as filthy rags apart from faith in his son, the God who demands obedience from the heart, the one before whom you must give an account, the one who is the very wrath and terror of hell, a consuming fire, presented with that God, the supposed indifference evaporates like a mist and the carnal mind expresses its hostility and hatred toward God. An example of this is the Lord himself. His first sermon, if you remember that sermon, <laughs> such words that they heard him spoke, unlike any teacher they'd ever heard, such gracious words flowing from his lips until he mentions the sovereignty of God and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> Those who would have never thought themselves enemies of God, they thought themselves friends of God, and yet such hostility. The carnal mind is enmity against God. There is no such thing as indifference in the carnal mind. There is no such thing as indifference. If you think about it, any professed indifference in the light of the cross, is simply a higher form of hatred. The carnal mind regards God as an enemy. And that open hostility and that resolved opposition is grounded in hatred and grounded in contempt for a God who stands in opposition to their presumed autonomy. That's what it is. God stands in opposition to their assumed or presumed autonomy, and they express their hatred for God. I will not have this man to rule over me. The nature of the carnally minded, do you see? Now notice second with me then. Notice the obstinacy then of the carnal mind. The obstinacy of the carnal mind. Verse seven. The carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now, the proof, the evidence of this man's hatred for God is to be found in the clarifying clause of verse 7. The evidence of his hatred is for or because, verse 7, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The natural or fallen man's refusal to subject himself to the law of God is conceived of as the primary way in which the carnal mind's enmity 
or the carnal mind's hostility against God is made manifest. How is the carnal man's hatred toward God demonstrated? How does he evidence his hatred for God? He will not submit himself to God's law. He will not subject himself to God's law. Matthew Henry, the holiness of the law of God and the unholiness of the carnal mind are as irreconcilable as light is from darkness. He will not submit himself. Key question is this. Key question is this. What does it mean to, to, to be subject to the law of God? What does it mean to submit yourself to the law of God? To be subject to the law of God would be to agree with Paul that the law of God is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. It would be to agree with Paul in the inner man, in the inner man, to agree the commandments are holy, the commandments are just, the commandments are good. Subjection or submission would not only involve a subordination of our will, it begins with a subordination of our minds, a subordination of our thoughts. Not to be carnally minded, but to be spiritually minded. But it doesn't only involve the subordination of our will, but it involves the motivations and affections of our heart. The spiritually minded man delights in the law of God. The spiritually minded man loves his commandments. He agrees from the heart with God that the law is holy and just and good. The will of the natural man, by contrast, is enslaved, enslaved to sin. As long as the carnal mind prevails, there will be no inclination of the will toward the law of God and no change in his conduct. You see how those things are intimately connected. As long as the carnal mind prevails, the mind is what engages the will. The will in, is what eventuates or bears fruit in action. As long as the carnal mind prevails, there will be no inclination of the will toward the law of God in the way that God expects. There are those who set their mind on the things of the flesh, and with their mind set on the things of the flesh, they strive to obey the law of God. Think with me for a moment about that. There are those who have their mind set on the things of the flesh, and with their mind set on the things of the flesh, they set out to obey the commandments of God. What are they doing? They're obeying the law of God for some benefit they may derive in their flesh. To benefit their own flesh. This is the religious hypocrite. This is the religious moralist. Sometimes we, we're convicted by the law of God. Rightfully so. We sin. We sin. And yet, we will sometimes confuse our standing as those who have been justified by faith with the religious hypocrite. Why? Because we're sinning. We're not sinning in the manner that this one is. And it's important to know the difference. They, set their, they have their minds set on the things of the flesh. And with their minds set on the things of the flesh, they engage their will in order to obey the law of God for some benefit derived in their flesh. For some benefit derived for themselves. The religious hypocrite, the moralist, the formalist, the legalist. This is... The Pharisees were of this sort. Do you see? The Pharisees were of this sort. Matthew chapter 23, the Lord said of the Pharisees, the scribes, that they do their works to be seen by men. I think for a moment about this one who conducts himself in this way. They do their works 
to be seen by men, to have the approval of men and not the approval of God. They like the best places in the feasts. They like the best seats in the synagogues. They like the greetings they get in the marketplace. Rabbi, rabbi. (laughs) They like the approval and the applause of men. And so what they do is motivated by the approval and the applause of men. The Lord said these men honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They're not subject to the law of God. They have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Now, what can be very convicting to us, brothers and sisters, is if we're honest with ourselves, we can see, we can find lurking there some of those disgusting, deplorable motivations in our own heart and mind, can't we? What is the prevailing state of your heart and mind toward God? Does it rejoice in God's commandments? Does it rejoice in righteousness? Does it pour contempt on the flesh? Does it pour contempt on your own latent disregard for the law of God? Robert Haldane said this, All the performances of the carnal mind in the way of religion spring from selfish motives. Now listen to what he says. All the performances of the carnal mind in the way of religion spring from selfish motives and a hope that on account of doing these things, it will somehow be accepted. Whereas the holy law of God utterly rejects all such service. So far from giving the law all its demands, the carnal mind gives it nothing. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. But not only is it a matter of fact that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, such subjection is impossible. Men may boast at the top of their lungs that they are free. They may tout their freedom. (laughs) They may idolize free will as those who live east of Turkey. Inside joke. Uh, They may boast that they are free, but all men apart from a work of the Spirit are slaves of sin. They're slaves of sin. Indwelling sin simply cannot be in subjection to the law. Remaining corruption, the two are mutually exclusive. Your remaining corruption, remaining corruption cannot be in subjection to the law. Haldane calls it a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms. The fact that the carnal mind will not subject itself to the law of God speaks of a man's total depravity. Will not. The fact that it cannot speaks of a man's total inability. Total inability. The carnally minded man may choose whatever he will. And whatever he will choose is evil. You see? The carnally minded man may choose whatever he will. And whatever the carnally minded man chooses will be evil. The ground of that bondage is not in any way imposed upon him. His will never violated. The ground of that bondage is his own native disposition toward the law of God. His carnal mind is at enmity with God. There's a heresy called equal ultimacy. And what those who oppose the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners, what they use to oppose 
the sovereignty of God in their own theology often is this notion of equal ultimacy, that God moves us around like robots, that we're puppets on a string and he's the puppet master and he's making you do it as if God were the one who is making you sin and God is the one withholding you from heaven. It's a, it's a deplorable caricature of biblical truth. It's awful. Equal ultimacy would say that God, in the same way that God works in the circumstances of fallen men to bring them to salvation, he's working in the circumstances actively of fallen men to push them off the abyss of damnation. Not the God of the Bible. The carnal mind, the carnally minded man needs no help. It's his own native disposition. There's, there's nothing being imposed upon him from the outside. Otherwise, as Haldane says, it wouldn't be criminal. Right? It's not being imposed upon him from the outside. The carnal mind, the carnally minded man, his own native disposition is hostile toward the law of God. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, and such subjection would be impossible. It's not the fact that the carnally minded man lacks the faculties to subject himself to the law of God. He doesn't lack the, the faculties to obey the law of God. He has the mind to do so. He can think. He has the heart, a heart with which to love God. He has a will with which he may choose to do that which is good. The faculties, those faculties are present with him, but the mind is at enmity with God. His nature at enmity with God. The heart is focused entirely upon satisfying the desires of his own flesh. The thoughts and intents of his heart, only evil continually. The will attached to the mind is enslaved to indwelling sin. It's in bondage to his sinful nature. There is nothing to prevent men from joyfully and willful, willingly obeying the law of God, but their own perverse and depraved disposition. There's nothing preventing them but themselves, their own depraved condition. In that sense, it's not a natural inability that prevents them. It's a moral inability that prevents them. Do you see? Paul refers to that moral inability of the one in the flesh to submit himself to the law of God. Um, Paul refers to that moral inability as centered in the carnal mind, which is at enmity with God. So then, verse 8, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we've considered, first, we considered the nature of the carnal mind. Second, we considered the obstinacy of the carnal mind. Now notice third, the failure of the carnal mind. Verse 8, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God is the one who has created us, not we ourselves. We are his. We are his workmanship. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. It should go without saying then that the primary objective of, the, of any rational creature would be to live a life that is well-pleasing to God. That should be your primary objective to live a life that is well-pleasing to God. The one who lives according to the flesh, the one who has his mind set upon the flesh, that one cannot please God. 
It is morally impossible for them to do so. Paul speaks of it in terms of total moral inability. Nothing that he does pleases God. Nothing that he does pleases God because everything that he does proceeds from a mind that is at enmity with God. Everything that he does proceeds from a heart and from a nature that is fully devoted to pleasing himself and not God. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I heard an illustration from a commentator on this passage of mutiny. Men in the ship who overtake the captain, bind him, and they take the ship. They steal the ship and they park it at an island where they proceed to tie up the captain to a tree on the island and then they all joyfully, happy with themselves, get back on the ship and take out to sea. Now, while they're out to sea, these men do good to one another. They do their duties toward one another. They are joyful toward one another. They treat one another kindly. They eat their food with gladness, and they live their lives in happiness. And, but all the while, they presume to be living in this way and may live in some identifiable, definable sense of goodness or with charity or with kindness toward one another, even though they may live with something that resembles that, all the while they're on the boat, the reality is their captain is tied to a tree on a deserted island. (laughs) And so it comes to the thought of one of the men on the boat, we're doing wrong. You see, everything that they're doing, everything that they're doing, they're doing within a sphere of enmity toward their captain who is tied to a tree on a deserted island. So everything, when he says we're doing wrong, he's saying everything that we're doing is from a, within a sphere of enmity, within a sphere of hostility toward their captain. That one who lives life that way, as indifferent as he may presume himself to be, or as good as he may presume himself to be, he is not the object of God's pleasure. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. He is rather the object of God's righteous displeasure. And to be the object of God's righteous displeasure is to be an object of his retributive justice and an object of his wrath. The carnal mind at enmity against God will become the carnal-minded subjected to the eternal enmity of God. For to be carnally minded is death. That's why the carnal mind produces the fruit of or leads to the fruit of death. Are you concerned at all about living a life that is pleasing to God? In a text that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, Paul contrasts then this tragic state, this tragic condition of the man who walks according to the flesh, whose mind is carnal at enmity with God. He contrasts that tragic condition with the condition, the blessed condition of that one who walks according to the spirit. Verse nine, but you are not in the flesh, but rather in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise God. Praise God. One of the blessings associated with those who walk according to the spirit is a life well-pleasing to God. Now think with me about that for a moment. One of the blessings associated or one of the blessings conferred upon those who do not walk according to the flesh, but rather walk according to the spirit is a life that is well-pleasing to God. Not a perfect life, not a perfect life, but a life well-pleasing to him. A life in union with the Lord Jesus Christ and by virtue of that union and by virtue of God's spirit dwelling within us, it's a life that is well-pleasing to him. The 16th century reformers began to speak of a life well-pleasing to God as one lived Coram Deo. We mentioned that earlier. Coram Deo, a life lived before the face of God or in the sight of God. The Christian life, a life that is well-pleasing to God is to live all of your life, each successive moment, as though all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions were done in the very presence of God. I think you can see the importance of that thought as you apply it and you're thinking even now. There are things that you would do in secret that you would never do in front of other people. That alone betrays this very principle. Do you see? It is a life lived before the face of or in the sight of God to live each successive moment in that way. And that's not a vain thought or an empty thought. God is omnipresent and God is omniscient. And so you do, you do live every successive moment before the face of God or in the sight of God. So what's the purpose of that concept? What's the purpose of that theology? It's to instruct you, to instruct me how we are to live, how we should think about living our lives. Often, brothers and sisters, we are like those Pharisees. Shamefully, to our own shame, we're often, we often live our lives for the approval or for the approbation of men. And look out. Because if the one you are living near begins to garner less of your concern for approval, then they often are the ones who are subjected to your sin. <laughs> what I mean by that is this. Have you ever thought about why it is sometimes men, for example? Have you ever thought about why you can sometimes treat your wife, for example, with such disregard that you wouldn't treat your friends with or those that you spend time with, hang out with? Now, if you're honest with yourself, men, husbands, there are times at which you treat those ladies, there are times at which you treat those nearest you worse than you would treat a stranger. You might be polite to a stranger and then turn around and snap at someone who is closest to you. It's at the root of the old colloquialism, familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that before, familiarity breeds contempt. 
Why is that? Why is that? Well, think with me now. It's a form of the enmity that lies within the faculties of our own fallen nature. It's a form of that enmity to live our lives as though we were not in his presence, to live as though we were entitled to autonomous moments or free moments, to live as we please moments, when in reality we sin before his face. Often we'll do that. The more that we are near someone, the less concerned we are for their approval or approbation, and the more inclined we are to give rein to the enmity that is latent within our own mind. That makes sense? We forget God. We disregard his omnipresence. We disregard the fact that God sees everything and knows every square centimeter of our hearts. We forget that fact and we live in disregard of his omnipresence. And that, brothers and sisters, is a form of the latent enmity that lurks within our remaining corruption that we have to deal with and that we should repent of. It's a form of that enmity. Familiarity breeds contempt. We think we sin in secret. And often when someone sins, they seek the cover of darkness. But we conduct ourselves in one way when we're in the presence of the one whose approval we seek. We conduct ourselves in quite another way when we're not as concerned about someone's approval. And we conduct ourselves often that way before the face of God or in the sight of God when we sin against him. The reformers, the reformers began to formulate the essence of the Christian life with those words, quorum Deo. And they, the essence of the Christian life, as they discussed it, was a profound consistency between the two. Um, when all of life is lived before the face of God in such a way as to garner his approval. We're to live each successive moment of our lives before the face of God or in the sight of God in such a way as to garner his approval, to live a life that is well-pleasing to him, living, a lot, uh, living with a mind that is set on the things of the Spirit, conscious of God, moment by moment. All of life lived before the face of God, under the authority of God, subject to the law of God, a life lived for the honor and approval of God and therefore to the glory of God. That is a life that is well-pleasing to God. That is the pursuit of the Christian. The Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. The one who says, the one who merely says that he loves me and does not keep my commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Is that not what John says? So we often fall shamefully into patterns of disregard for God where we are living for ourselves, not living quorum Deo, living for ourselves, and somehow imagining or just ignoring that God sees how we live. We live where our otherwise spiritual-minded is out the window. Spiritual-mindedness is gone. It's suppressed. And that remaining carnality that plagues us seeks to reassert its dominance over us. Part of living a life that is well-pleasing to God is resistance, is the battle against sin, is putting off the old man. It is an ongoing effort in holy zeal 
to break off the old man with his lusts and to press on in perseverance in pursuit of a life, quorum Deo, a life lived before the face of God. Paul would say it in Romans 6, do not present your members, the faculties of your soul as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but rather present yourselves as alive to God and your members, the faculties of your soul, as instruments of righteousness to God. The more that you do the one, the more that you present your instruments, your members as instruments of unrighteousness, the more that you cultivate a habit of giving sway to the carnality that remains, the corruption that remains, the more that you indulge the flesh, the more that you are building a habit and building a life on walking according to the flesh. The more that you present your members as instruments of righteousness to God and live according to the Spirit, the more that you are cultivating a habit of submitting your faculties to life that is associated with the Spirit, and the more that you build a habit of spiritual-mindedness that is set upon the things of the Spirit, the more that you'll cultivate a habit of holiness. The one... On the one path, you will eventually be confirmed in your carnal-mindedness, and the fruit of that is death. In the other, you will be confirmed as one indwelt by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, as one spiritually-minded, and you have your fruit to holiness. The end of that path is everlasting life. The more that you cultivate a habit in either direction, the more that you render yourself without a choice. In the one, very, very good. In the other, tragic, absolutely tragic. What are we to do to live a life that is pleasing to God? We're to persevere in that fight. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't disregard God. Live quorum Deo. Don't give in to satisfying the lusts of the flesh, but pursue walking according to the Spirit And part of that life that is well-pleasing to God is not living the perfect, sinless life. Brothers and sisters, we're not going to do that on this side of eternity. But it is a life that perseveres in that pursuit. It is living a life that fights to that end. Amen? Let's do that for his glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, our desire from the heart is to live a life that is well-pleasing to you. Lord, protect us from giving sway to that remaining corruption, to that old man, to our flesh, to that carnal-mindedness that can still sometimes plague the Christian. Prevent us, Lord. Protect us from giving sway to that. And by your Spirit, Lord, strengthen us to pursue living our lives Each successive moment, quorum Deo, is in your sight, is before your face. And strengthen us, Lord, uh, by your Spirit to overcome sin, uh, to resist, knowing that we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. If we draw near to God, you will draw near to us. Assure us of these promises, Lord. Um, Strengthen our faith, encourage our faith, embolden our faith, fuel our faith with these promises with, um, Lord, a, a, a
practical experience of your goodness and your grace to us in these things. And may it be that by your spirit, with our faith rooted and grounded in you and all that you've promised us through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, may it be that we live a life in increasing conformity um, to the life of the Spirit, to that associated with the Spirit, to the things of the Spirit that is in conformity with your law, ultimately knowing, Lord, that that path leads to um, complete conformity into the image of your Son. And we long for that day. We long to see him, knowing that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we pray, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, as we live for you in this life, and help us, Lord, to live a life that is pleasing. May it be for your everlasting glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.